So welcome to our Early Years Mental Health Conversations podcast with myself, Kate Moxley and Kerry Payne, EYFS for me. Today we are all like super excited to be welcoming Liz Pemberton, the Black Nursery Manager, to our podcast. Liz has branded herself on social media platforms as the Black Nursery Manager. And I'm sure as I give her that introduction, lots of people are going to be like, ooh, tell me why, you know, why the Black Nursery Manager? Um, And that I know for some people might um, make people feel a little bit uncomfortable because actually we're pointing out that Liz is a black nursery manager. So straight to the point. Um, But before we get into that, Liz, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I'm really excited to be here, Kate um, and Kerry. And, you know, I really want to get this conversation started because we are late in the game talking about all things race and anti-racism and anti-discriminatory practice in the early years in general. So I am very excited to join you uh, both today to really get into it, get into the meat of these conversations. Yes, we're excited to have you here. And I think especially as a fellow Brummie, I wonder how how, um, (laughs) Brummie, more Brummie I'm going to sound by the end of it and and you, because when you speak to people from where you're from, you just start doing it. So it's the way forward, Bab. It's It's the way forward. It's the only thing that we can, you know, really claim and be proud of uh you know our accents being a brummy bab it's the way forward and, and <laughs> kerry as well being a you know a scouser and having a liverpool accent i was speaking to someone earlier about self-limiting beliefs and actually you know i wouldn't have necessarily said that being a brummy um and the dulcet tones of a brummy would make a fascinating podcast but you know <sighs> We, we, we are who we're we are. paving the way we're paving the way Kate and Kerry I need to add the Scouse accent is my second favorite so yes. I'm right at home do you know what I mean I this is where I needed to be I'm often referred to as a posh Scouser in London oh, really oh we'll yeah, get into the intersections of a uh, of class later on in this uh, yeah. podcast chat well, hopefully apparently I my, my accent has refined itself Although when I am on the phone to a family member, my husband yep. said I suddenly switched straight into <laughs> I yeah. exactly that's what I'm thinking is going to happen today with me and Liz because I've obviously got my posh Solihull accent on when I do that. When, when we speak in person, it's a little bit different. So, so let's get into it. Um, I think that's going to be a good one already. Mm. So we. Always start with this first question, which is, how are you feeling this? Kate, you know, this is the lightest that I've felt in a good few weeks. So when I talk about feeling light, obviously it's direct uh, opposite to heaviness and how heavy I had been feeling with the world's events, with very national events and quite local events, of course, around the murder um, of George Floyd uh, in the US, one of many. So, you know, the ripple effects of that, I think particularly for me as a black woman, um, it's echoed throughout, I guess, black communities uh, all over the world. So the heaviness that I had felt is actually starting to feel only slightly lighter, but I do feel lighter today and I think part of the reason that I feel a little bit lighter is because I've been able to talk, discuss, really mull over and get into some very 
positive actually conversations um, within the sector, within the earlier sector, and that's been quite enlightening to to hear. It's been quite bittersweet actually. Um, you know, it has its pros and its cons, uh, and I say bittersweet, I guess, because for me, my skin, the colour of my skin, isn't something that I can take off and put on. Uh, the injustices that I may have experienced, um, as well as you know, other members of the community. It's something that's been a lifelong experience, I guess. And now it feels like the world's waking up. Um, it feels like white people are waking up. It feels like there's a dialogue that is now ready to be had. Um, and although that is, it's sweet, the bitterness of that is, has it come too late? Or why has it only come now? Um, so quite a lengthy explanation to how I'm feeling, but, you know, I wanted to give you some context. Oh, of course, I absolutely appreciate that. Um, and it's, you know, really interesting to kind of hear you, hear your perspective on that and explain oh. it. And I can't imagine, um, I think I'm beginning to wake up and I think I've said this previously that, you know, I've said I'm sensitive to injustice. I don't think I've ever fully understood what injustice means oh. as a white woman um, mm -hmm. who has experience privilege all of their lives and I, mm. I I you know you describe white people waking up you know I think Kerry and I've been quite vocal although both obviously have different life experiences entirely so I don't want to speak on behalf of Kerry but we both feel very much the same we we are part of that gr group of white people who are waking up mm. and like Kerry's mm. words around this were how do we um, how did you word it Kerry you, I didn't want to put the words in your mouth you talked about um about we don't want to go back to sleep now we want to we want we want to keep moving with this we want to keep learning and understanding um and you know there's a, absolutely there's a long way to go so and yeah. this is the coffee shop this is the coffee shop kerry mm -hmm. uh, and kate you know get all that caffeine in because you need to stay awake this this is the call to arms i like that the coffee shop um <laughs> or caffeine shots but yeah i think um one of the ladies that we spoke to early on in the podcast, she, um, Kate actually shared a conversation that they'd had around, because I'm very much around feminism and, and women's rights, particularly in the early years. Uh -huh. um, and, I, and I feel like women's individual experiences are often overlooked and, and we have this massive focus on increasing men in the early years, but nobody uh -huh. seems to be going, actually, Women have been working in the ends for a long time and nobody really seems to care about those issues. Hello, absolutely. And where we kind of look at that, it's so key. Terry, as you yeah. said, you know, we need but, to not forget about women. But have I thought about it in terms of white women is what my question was and what Vanessa had said is how can you be so vocal about feminism but not oh. think about the injustices oh, that oh. Um, other ethnicities may be facing? So Yeah, we think about the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, we think about intersectionality, we mm. think about intersectionality specifically to, you know, the feminist movement and historically as black women we have known where we have fit in that feminist movement. It's been excluding of us it's not being inclusive of us so that term intersectionality is so key we need to look at the intersections of our gender our race our class where that positions us because even within this feminist movement black women sit at the bottom of that and that's why we've had to assert ourselves you know in the conversation and also create movements outside of that uh so that it's you know it's a deafening tone of we are here 
and we are unapologetic about our presence here and you will notice us and you will take you know into account our experiences um and even if you don't we're going to keep on shouting it from the rooftops anyway but Mm -hmm. i think i'm very much in agreement with you kerry that you know feminism particularly within a sector that is highly dominated by women um it shouldn't be something that's overlooked but most importantly is how the different range of women that make up that movement feature and are amplified yeah, I think that's really good. Absolutely. Uh, one of the I've obviously talked about the work I do with regard to mental health and wellbeing and what I what I sense and from the people that I work with is really that sense of low self-esteem within the sector. Um, mm. and a lot of times as women we 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 make presumptions and we judge each other. We're quick to without realising it you know, see a strength or skill or what we perceive to maybe be confidence and we view Mm. it in a derogatory way and Mm. it's all about empowering our workforce Mm. and it's all of our workforce, so men, women, but also I think as we we think about that empowering, embracing, um, you know, understanding our vulnerabilities, I think, but also what our skills, strengths and talents are, it's understanding that also with regard to culture and the different races and yes. that we have. So yes. I listened to your live with the epiphany people about a week or so ago now. Mm-hmm. And I listened to you chatted and I was like, I, wrote, I think if I try and find, <laughs> I, I wrote two pages of notes while I was listening. <laughs> but one of the things I'd said, I'd written down was she could teach us a thing or two because you were so, you were confident in what you, in your practice, in what you were doing within your nursery. And it was like a breath of fresh air because quite often that is, that is something that doesn't happen for us. And so it was wonderful to kind of hear you talking about, but you know, you, you were bold and unapologetic. And I suppose that brings me round to, you know, as I introduced you as the black nursery manager, talk and explain to our, our listeners around, why you have branded yourself and put yourself out there as the black nursery manager why why is that relevant to for you to do that because i want us to move away from this myth within early years particularly i guess as a sector where we you know and i've quoted some of this in my blog oh we don't see color everybody's the same we treat everybody equally you know color isn't important why all the fuss the general dialogue around race awareness and anti-racist work um is born out of a place of ignorance It's born out of a place of what I would say isn't actually unconscious. It's very willfully ignorant. You cannot escape the fact that when you see me, I'm a black woman and I want you to see me as a black woman. I want you to have an understanding and an awareness of what that might mean to me and my general interactions within the sector. Uh, And positioning myself as a black woman has come with all of the hurdles that one can imagine um, if we are doing the work around reading other people's experiences, talking to children and families, and talking to practitioners as well. But in some cases, people hadn't seen me before they had met me. Um, And my name presupposes uh, a different kind of um, imagery, shall we say. You know, I am Elizabeth Pemberton. And if you put that name on a piece of paper, you might not expect to see me. So it's important that I introduce myself very boldly, very unapologetically. That is my personality. I am a nursery manager, but I am a black nursery manager. I am the black nursery manager. And when I 
write that, when I put that on my social media handles, when I come into a conversation, um, you know, somebody may have seen that handle. I want them to see it before they see me. I want them to be confronted with sometimes what could be quite an uncomfortable truth because, you know, in the UK, within the early years, we're still very uncomfortable about talking um, around race and racial identities and racial identity markers. We are very uncomfortable with that. And I know that by putting that in the title of my name, um, it takes that away, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm addressing the elephant in the room. Um, and it is an elephant in the room because as I said, people don't want to talk about race, particularly when it comes to children. And particularly when it comes to, you know, the early years sector, we have lulled ourselves into a false sense of being really inclusive and really accepting and really understanding because we celebrate Diwali and we celebrate Eid and we celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, October comes and, you know, there's, oh, Black History Month. I don't know how many nursery settings actually actively celebrate Black History Month, for instance, but for me as a Black nursery manager, and looking at the setting that I manage, you know, it's born out of a place of grassroots community. So, you know, the demographic of the children in the setting that I manage, which is the family business as well, I should add. So my mother owns the business and we've got three day nurseries, but my nursery has historically always served the Black African Caribbean communities from far and wide, not just um, within the locality. The nursery is based in an area called Edgebaston. So for those of you who are from Birmingham, you'll know Edgebaston well. You'll know where it sits. Um, you will know what the, you know, the people are like that are here. And I always joke, one direction it's Edgebaston and the other direction it's Edgebaston. Um, for the Brummies, Edgebaston. Uh, so, you know, those two pronunciations, they dictate something very deep around the demographic of the people that live there. But the children who have always attended the nursery, and I've kind of, you know, I've been here for 16 years. They've been Black African Caribbean and there is an affinity there. There is a, a, a nuance in how we engage with one another and a necessity for that nuance and we shouldn't shy away from it. Um, and it was also, you know, born out of the fact that there were a lot of kind of prejudices that people came with preconceived ideas when families would come and look around the nursery, white families that would be, there would be a visible, you know, shock. I should say, around who opened the door to them or when they came in and they saw black and brown children. Um, because, you know, I have got a percentage of South Asian families that attend the setting and historically have always done as well. But there's only so many times you can kind of brush it under the carpet or ignore the fact that some white families were coming and they were greeting us with a look of shock. You can only, you know, dismiss that so many times before you start calling it what it is. It's racism, you know, it, it, it isn't prejudice, you know, it isn't, you know, uh, people being rude, it's racism. And it's another thing that we have to come to terms with within the early years. What is racism? What is the definition of racism? Because people often think that because they haven't used the N word, because they haven't referred to you in a derogatory way, you know, you know, they're not racist, but, uh, I think a lot of people in the early sector need to do some work around what racism actually is before we can define what anti-racism actually looks like within the setting. Um, so again, 
you know, there are no short answers. Kate and Kerry, you'll, you'll, you'll have heard. <laughs> but I am the Black Nursery Manager and I am unapologetically so. And it's important that people come to grips with that and understand what that means for me, for the communities that I serve, for the children and families that I have in the setting and who I've historically looked after um, within, you know, the context of being black, being black African Caribbean, um, being the daughter of two parents that came to the country when they were 14. You know, the stories are multi-layered, they're multifaceted. Um, and as I said, they're very nuanced, but we should actively celebrate that um, as a defining feature of, of who we are and who I am. I think an important point yeah. that you've made there as well about using the term racist or racism is that we also need to stop seeing it as an attack on a person uh -huh. rather than an enlightening someone to their actions. Because I think if, if, for example, somebody called me racist probably four weeks ago, <gasps> this yeah. like horror and shock and, and defensiveness, whereas now I would go, let's explore that then and why my actions mm -hmm. may be directly racist or racist mm -hmm. by default. And um, mm -hmm. because sometimes... I think racism is born out of our, our silence when we're surrounded by other people that act or behave racist, like family members, for example. Uh -huh. they say, well, it's a casual behavior. Uh -huh. No, it's a racist behavior. So uh -huh. I think uh -huh. actually taking the, the attack out of the term enables uh -huh. growth. And enables yeah. people to go, actually, I need to learn through, yeah. through being held accountable for my actions. Of and course, uh, you know. You're a bad person. It means totally, Kerry. Yeah. Totally. I mean, a term, you know, born out of kind of Robin D'Angelo's theories around it. You know, it's white fragility at its finest. Being accused of racism is somehow seen as more horrific than actually the act of racism and we need to actually move away from thinking about individual acts of racism and look at systemic racism yeah mm -hmm. we're not we're not concerned too much with you know you're you're racist you're racist you're racist you're ra but we're looking at the system and that's why this podcast is so important and the platform that you've created to have these conversations is more powerful than i think even you both realize because you've got to think in the history of childcare in the uk you know, we, I think we're all in the same kind of similar 30s age bracket. Uh, you know, give and take, give and take. <laughs> but we've been doing what we've been doing for a long time. I can't tell you, um, you know, how many opportunities I've had to have these kinds of conversations with white practitioners, white nursery managers, white primary school teachers, white head teachers. I've had these conversations a plethora of times with black people in these positions but moving that as i said nervousness away it opens the door for this kind of dialogue and that is so valuable it's mm. so so valuable but it will ask it will actually enable us then to talk about you know the sector as a whole and how the system of racism works the mechanisms of how it works and how it impacts our practice within early years because we have to look at the systemic roots of things and link it to wider contexts because everything links in absolutely i think one of the things i want to kind of go back to and try to pick apart for people who are listening who are listening because they are seeking to understand is that when a black person such as yourself talks about as you have 
boldly and, and apologetically about being black nursery manager and the culture of your setting and talks about white people. Their, their defence, their defence is that... You there? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yep. the sound went very odd. Yeah, oh. it did. Did it? Invaded by ghosts. Yeah, a bit of an oh, alien dear. interruption. <laughs> oh dear. So I don't know how much you got of that. It, once again, I would say. <laughs> okay, so I repeat myself. So to hear, I think for, for people who are listening and they're listening to seek to understand and do better and mm -hmm. challenge some of their thoughts and beliefs, when we hear a black person talk, um, and then talk about white people. So, for example, I talked about Anthony Joshua last week in a podcast mm -hmm. with Laura around how his narrative had been flipped around and mm -hmm. white people are outraged and say, imagine if we spoke about black people <laughs> in the way that um, Anthony Joshua was talking about white people. And I think maybe for some people, if we're being honest, they'll hear you speaking boldly mm -hmm. and, um, and apologetically and they'll mm -hmm. think, well, this makes me feel uncomfortable because actually I wouldn't talk about black people people and white people like that and that mm -hmm. stems back to what we said at the very start that it's about the fact that I treat people the same regardless of whether they're gay mm -hmm. whether they're whether they're black whether they're mm -hmm. Asian whoever they are as long as they're a nice person but mm -hmm. it isn't about that and so people need to challenge that uncomfortableness don't they um to to, to kind of unpick that because what you said is it's not just now words and actions it's not not good enough to just be like I'm not racist. To be anti-racist is to understand when you might be doing something, whether it's mm -hmm. words or actions or actually systems yep. that lead to inequalities, to views mm -hmm. being marginalised, to lack mm -hmm. of opportunities for all sorts mm -hmm. of different things. Mm -hmm. In the Jane Lane book, what she says is there's only one word that's worse than being called a racist and that's being called a paedophile. Absolutely. It creates, I know that's a powerful but it creates the same kind of, oh, I'm not mm. that, that, it's uncomfortable. It's not mm. nice to think about, but actually we've got to challenge it, like you said. So mm. the systems, when we talk about systematic racism, when we talk about, you know, institutionalized discrimination, how, what does, for people listening that have never heard some of these terms before, mm. what does that mean? So when we're looking at, you know, systematic and systemic racism, we look at the two, and how they operate hand in hand. So we look at the systems that are in place. So if we look at how uh, the earlier sector is governed and how um, you know we are measuring our practice, uh, we are part of an institution, the education institution. And the institution of education in the UK historically has always been known to be racist, just like the institution of the police, just like the institution of the health service, just like, you know, our, our mental health institutions, there is systemic and systematic racism that is in place within these institutions. And that is around the, I guess, the practices of the people that control these institutions. And I guess the most simplest way that we can look at it is just look at our own experiences within the early year sector. How many times have you worked in a nursery setting that is owned by a black woman? How many times have you worked in a nursery setting where you have been managed directly by a black woman or a black man? Um, but for the purposes of this conversation, I think I'm talking about, you know, my very um, own experience here and asking the listeners to reflect on some of those things. And then we look at the systems that are in place. So, you know, 
Ofsted is our regulatory body. If we look at the system of Ofsted and the way in which they inspect our settings and regulate us and tell us whether we are outstanding, tell us whether we are good or requires improvement, what is the, or how are the, I guess, the inspectors trained to inspect settings that don't reflect uh, what they are aware of or understand or where they are from or you know how are they coming into the setting what lens are they using to look at how the nursery setting or the school you know operates uh, Ofsted will tell you that they do unconscious bias training we've all done this kind of training you know we've done you know anti-racism training unconscious bias training special educational needs first aid training we do all sorts of training you know we get a certificate at the end but how deeply does that dig into our practice and our personal experiences and our understanding of how it works? Because I can tell you, if we look at the system of, you know, our regulatory body, Ofsted, and we go and look at the, our management page of Ofsted, there is nobody in that management team that looks like me. There's nobody in that management team, actually, who I would think, okay, they've got um, an idea of how things may operate here much like the government that we have at the moment you know we hear we talk about intersections of class you know white working class people saying that they're not you know always representative of what they feel this current Tory government and we have certain sectors of white working class um, societies or communities that say actually no you know what Boris talks for us we understand how those systems work we're starting to understand now and become more politically engaged with how the government has a direct impact on our day-to-day -day living. But as I said, if we bring it back to Ofsted, for instance, they may have a few inspectors that have come and, you know, a black inspector or an Asian inspector, but ultimately they're part of an institution which upholds very deeply institutionally racist views about certain families, certain children. Um, and we see that in the way in which settings are graded even if we go and do our own kind of research, if your listeners go and have a look at, you know, areas that they are living in, look at the breakdown of the families that are, are living there or the people that they see on their, their trip to the local shopping centre or to their local shops. Who are the people that you see? Where are the nurseries located in these areas? And how are those nurseries graded? Have a look and historically do a little bit of work because it's all there for you to see. Um, and it's really important that we understand that the tokens within the system of Ofsted, and when I say tokens, I talk about people that they'll put in place that might look like me. Yeah, it's, you know, it's part of a tick box exercise to a degree. There are going to be inspectors that are black. There are going to be inspectors that are, are brown. Um, and when I say brown, I'm referring, you know, mainly to South Asian um, people. Uh, you know, look at how many inspectors, if you are working in a nursery now, how many inspectors have you had that are black? How many inspectors have you had who are brown? Even if we look at, you know, East Asian communities in the, in the UK, you know, if we look at East Asian communities, there are East Asian families that have been in the UK for as long as my parents who have been in the UK since, you know, the sixties, East Asian children are accessing our settings. Yeah. But how often, apart from when, quote unquote Chinese New Year comes around we're using the Chinese New Year as an umbrella for everything so we're looking at the systems you know because that doesn't cover anything and I think Kerry had said earlier she'd you know been in the setting and they had <laughs> I think it was like a Japanese 
um, restaurant role play thing for Chinese New Year. And it, it's there. It's in the, the willful ignorance of how people want to operate within settings. So I, I'm kind of trying to touch on how systemic, systematic racism works on a larger scale and kind of trying to bring it down to, I guess, a, a more localized sense of of the words um, and the systems. But I think for anybody who works in early years or in education, Ofsted is a good place to, to start. Have a look at it, have a look at it and process it and look at it through the lens of race. It shows the um, the power of ecological systems as well, doesn't it? Because like mm -hmm. the way actually you've, you've um, kind of broadened um, some of those aspects of, of, of racism and how it's, it's part of our structural systems. Mm -hmm. And actually it filters so much down into our early education system. Yeah. Um, and equally where you were talking about the inspector, um, seeing a black inspector, you do wonder in those settings that, that, you know, have some of those more discriminatory practices, how would they respond to a black inspector coming in? Would the same level of respect be given with the, you know, how's that in, uh, inspector's mm -hmm. experience as well? Like it's mm -hmm. all, oh, it, it, it's so much more complex. And I think when you said at the beginning about, are we too late to the game? Because once we're starting to pull at these threads, it's like, geez, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. Like there's so many things. So many things. Um, yeah. upon. Um, and I think that a really important question around that then um, is, you know, calling a spade a spade. When we go into our earlier settings, we have in um, practitioners with an assortment of qualifications and assortment yep. of skills, absolutely terrible paying in many cases, mm -hmm. underfunded by governments, not mm -hmm. respected, and um, fighting top-down pressures. Mm -hmm. How, in what ways do you envisage that those people who themselves feel that they're they're experiencing their own adversity? How, how do you envisage or, or what are your thoughts about how we extend or expand our pedagogy to, to tackle this issue in a meaningful and, and sustainable way? Because it's the sustainability that frightens me. Totally. And we, we are aware, Kerry, you know, at the moment we've had a lot of hashtag movement. You know, we've had a lot of Black Square movement. It's been very, um, very on trend, you know, to have put a Black Square on your Instagram is meant to say something but we talk about sustainability in terms of movements, in terms of pedagogy, in terms of how we are going to make this something that is long lasting. We've also got to think about the history of people who work in the early years sector and nursery managers. <clears throat> Some nursery managers have been managing for longer than I've been alive, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about undoing this thread, it's very uncomfortable work and people have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Everybody has to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I want your listeners to really think about that, right? And how to challenge things to make sure that things become sustainable within our practice. And it starts with self. It starts with you having a little look at who you are and doing a self audit. We talk about auditing the resources in our nursery. Oh, we've got a black doll, tick it off the list. Oh, we've got two books that have got some black characters, tick it off the list. But how many books have you got that reflect children that look like nobody in the setting? How many white dolls have I got in this setting? I've got a load. How many white children have I got? None. I've got no white British children, but I've got white dolls and I've got books with my two grands. You know, it's important to have. I don't have any children here who come from a family where they've got, you know, um, 
two nans necessarily all the time because one of the nans might have passed away or one of the nans might not be in the child's life because of the fracture of the family. Mm. I've got books here that represent, you know, same-sex families. It's very important. Mm. A book called The Princess Boy, really important. because We need to look at gender expression. We need to look at sexual orientation. We need to look at family dynamics. So the work starts within. It starts with the individual. As a nursery manager, as a practitioner, what have you done? What are you doing actively and not just in work, but outside of work? Audit your friends group. Start calling out the rubbish. Start calling out the bullshit. Start asking yourself, who am I actually around? My mum always used to say to me, and you know, it's a, it's a, a very well-known Caribbean saying, show me your friends, you know, and it'll tell me who you are. I audit my friends group on the regular. You know, I don't have um, a, a, a three, I guess, <laughs> three strikes and you're out. Actually, in the past three weeks, one strike, you're out. See you later. Got to keep it moving. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't got time to be educating you. You want me to be your steward through race awareness and being a better person. Now nah, you can do that on your own, mate, because that's not what I was born to do. And that's what I'm asking practitioners to do. Do a little bit of a self-audit, you know, have yeah. a look at you because this work has got to be sustainable and it's got to be something that we continue to work at. It cannot be covered in a one day training course. Do not go to your manager and say, can you put me on an anti-racist course? It's yeah. not going to fix it, but you yeah. know what I mean? You've got to do more than that. Um, it's, with you. it's very multi-layered, Kate. Very multi-layered, Kerry. It's, it's well, a lot of work to do. It is and it's not going to be done in our, in our lifetime. No, it's bigger than all of us, isn't it? It's bigger than all of us. Absolutely. But one of the things I certainly know early as practitioners, so I can remember listening to Manet Konkambaya. I always say her name incorrectly, um, but I, at least I'm trying to say it. You're trying and practice makes perfect. But, yeah. But she'll, I remember sitting at the back of it, it was Jigsaw Earlier's conference when she was doing the yeah. keynote speech. And it was about neuroscience. And the practitioners were sitting there absolutely lapping up what Monet was talking about mm -hmm. in terms of flipping your lid and understanding yep. your brain and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, um, and so what was happening, which was, I'm really sorry. And not to all the listeners, my husband decided to be really kind to bring me a cup of tea. Oh. But I couldn't concentrate at the same time to ask that question <laughs> and try to look at him because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, uh, there was nowhere for him to put the tea. So that, you know, we, we're all uh, at home in lockdown or some of us are, and we're all adapting. So, you know, it's real life. Yeah, so, it's real life. Yep. Yeah, so he's going to get into trouble for that later. Um, <laughs> Pardon? Did you get your cup of tea? Oh yeah, it's on the floor. Oh. <laughs> so, um, what I was talking about was that everyone was sat there just absolutely lapping at what she was saying about, ultimately about young children's mental health because it was to do mm -hmm. with children. But yeah, when we try to challenge stuff to think about taking care of their own mental health and well-being, yeah. a lot of people are more reluctant to do it. And ultimately what we're saying here is these small young children, black, brown, white, age whatever these children are going to leave us at, in the not too distant future and they're going to go out into a world that actually you know is going to treat them differently based on the color of their skin yeah. and we have to accept that that is actually what is happening yeah and if, 
and so um, I was listening to the podcast with Brené Brown with Austin mm-hmm. Channing Brown and she was mm-hmm. talk, talking about the work of anti-racism is coming is becoming a better human to other humans and she's and, and ultimately what we're saying to our workforce is this which is what Austin Channing Brown said was you have the capacity to be a better human would you accept that invitation that is what we're saying to our workforce literally you know we're here and we are asking very basic you know it is a human right <clears throat> when we talk about you know this hashtag blm black lives matter i'm not telling you that white lives don't matter what i am telling you is that it's really important that you recognize that my black life matters in the context of what is happening in this world when you are looking at your eyfs framework and you're looking at people and communities for instance what does that mean to you? How are you making sure there is an enabling environment in your setting which takes stock of people and communities? It's in the literature. But how are you interpreting that literature? With what head and through what lens? It's really important that you look at it because actually the information there for us to do the work and for us to make this sustainable. You know, the government have given us this glossy document. For those of us who had been in early years a little bit longer, you know, um, and may have like the NNEB qualification uh, or remember, um, you know, the, the birth to three matters document. No, they're all really beautiful. They're very glossy. They're very lovely. But how are we decoding that and making that applicable in our setting? So Brené Brown talks a lot, of course, about the power of vulnerability. We have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and we have to really widen our... I guess the literature that we take in, the things that we consume, because we have a lot of work to do if we know that our responsibility is to shape the minds and the experiences of the children that we're looking after. How are we preparing them for the real world? Yes, the nursery is a lovely CBBS, Teletubbies kind of place. It's lovely, it's bouncy, it's bright. Um, Kerry talked about this you know, little video that I put on my Instagram yesterday about being bold about being unapologetic and people often talk about my energy and the level of high energy that I've got I am that way because I am me but I realize there's an importance behind that energy because I work in early years I work with children children do not respond to dull characters okay so that has to come through and penetrate everything that I do it's the underlying thing around everything that I do and it's the same way we have to approach this anti-discriminatory practice, anti-racist practice, and look at these, I guess, these spaces and places where we're having to be vulnerable. Because there's gonna be a lot of challenging conversations that have to happen. Um, but I do, I do think about the work of Jane Lane. You know, she's been doing this for a long time, a long, long time. Jane Lane has been an anti-racist campaigner, activist in the early years forever. Something that really changed me as a practitioner very early on in the day, I went to a training course by a lady called Haki Kapasi, who for me was monumental in giving me the dialogue to talk about anti-racism work in the early years. Haki Kapasi is a trainer. And I remember she did a training course um, for Birmingham Local Authority, which absolutely changed my perspective and changed my understanding because it allowed me to, as I said, have access to language that I thought didn't exist when it came to nurseries. I thought, oh, nobody's talking about that. I, you know, you talked about lapping it in at that, at that conference, Kate. I was so engrossed. And I, I recently made contact with Haki, actually, because I found her on Facebook, Ooh, the wonders of social media. 
And I couldn't wait to tell her how much of an impact she'd had on me and if she remembered me and, you know, and it was so heartwarming because she'd messaged me back and said, Liz, I've got absolute fond memories of you. I remember, you know, you at that time and you telling me about your masters and the things that you wanted to do. And I'm so happy that you're living your dream because ultimately that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. So different, I guess, awoke, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to use that word actually. Um, Different things happen to us at different times to, I guess, wake us up. Mm. Yeah. We, as you said, you know, we've all been in slumber. Um, When we wake up, it's about what we're going to do then. What foot are we going to put forward? How are we going to be better human beings? And the first thing that we have to do in order to do that is live in our truth and live in the truth of the situation and the climate. People have been forced to take stock of what's happening in the world because we are at home. You know, lockdowns happened and lockdowns forced us into some uncomfortable treats. Social media has aided us, given us a visual aid to all of the naysayers, to all of the white people that have said, well, that doesn't happen. You know, we're not as bad as America. England's much better. Well, I can tell you, because I'm born and bred in the UK. Mate, it it isn't. It isn't. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to shake yourself out of that little dream um, because it's, 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 it's a nightmare. Okay. And it's, it's very real. And I saw something the other day and it said, if a black person tells you about their experience, believe them. If a gay person tells you about their experience, believe them. If a trans person tells you about their experience, believe them because we are living it. And there's nothing worse than having your experience denied. The same way in which, you know, if your mental health was not in a great place and you were feeling a little bit anxious about coming to work, you'd want your manager to believe you. You'd want your manager to have a little sit down with you and be like, what can I do to make your workload? easier it would be really irresponsible and horrible of me to just be like oh no it's fine you know what I mean get over your anxiety you know what are you always crying for why are you always late instead of thinking it might have taken everything in that person's you know spirit to get on the bus today just Mm. to get here the five minutes late oh well do you know what I mean the world hasn't ended you've got here um so you know I just I think about this in so many different ways uh ladies and i just think it's more than resources do you know what i mean it's a mindset it's it's a mindset um it's some of the i've got that thing you know where someone said like 900 things that you're like need to absorb that into (laughs) me and then reflect upon it because Mm. there's like a there's a a a reoccurring theme that's happened across the podcast episodes and one of those is space um and often around emotional space and something that me and kate were talking about yesterday um, and, and I'm really happy, actually, that you've talked about some of these other injustice um, areas and inequalities, is that because this is the predominant discussion at the moment, it doesn't knock over inequalities. It doesn't, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't reduce the importance of gay rights. It doesn't reduce the importance of feminism. It doesn't uh-huh. reduce the importance of poverty. Um, the, the, the point in those inequalities is that they are distinct experiences and we don't want to keep putting them all into one big, I was having mm-hmm. an interesting conversation with a colleague today that says, we all talk about these protected characteristics, but the problem with putting them in a big box and going, there they all are, is we, we don't look at them as distinct and we don't mm-hmm. give them enough time and space mm-hmm. as individual and, and equal issues, but also then looking at how they contextually interweave and impact each other. So Absolutely. That, that comment around, if a, if a gay person tells you about their experience, believe them. If a trans person, if a black person, 
And I just, I think from a white person's perspective, trying to imagine how that must feel to continually have to defend your experiences. Intergenerationally as well, Kerry. Yeah, you know. and to be continually told, well, have you thought about that the right way? Well, maybe it wasn't that. And, and I think that happens in all human relationships. Yeah. It um, does. Really, it's, it's so important not to, to go with your seed of doubt straight away. So it's another totally. by a white person. It's, to- I always say it's not the oppression Olympics. Okay, I'm not here to say, well, my injustice is more important than yours. But what I am here to say is you need to take stock and you need to take note. There's a trend at the moment of black people coming onto TV to talk about their experiences of racism, you know, mm-hmm. to have their experiences validated by white people. And it's a very dangerous cycle that people are getting themselves into because you would not dream of having somebody who is Jewish coming on to demand this happened to me this happened to my ancestors this happened to the whole generation of people that came before me to be accused of being uh, a holocaust denier is absolutely abhorrent right to be anti-semitic it's absolutely abhorrent it is disgusting it is not anything that as a society we should ever 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 be upholding or giving space for people to be like well did the holocaust really happen was it really that bad we would never dream of that as a society yet we think about the black lives matter movement and we think about people going and protesting peacefully and there's this big uproar well how dare they you know, we look at the recent kind of situations around a statue. <laughs> you know, what is the legacy of that statue? Bristol, I big up the Bristolians. Like that for me was the most powerful thing. Drag it and put it in the dark, put it in the water. That's where it needs to go because that, that's where my ancestors were. That's what happened to them. And I will not for a second say, you know, oh, well, maybe they should have protested this way. Maybe they should have done it that. After years, centuries, you know, there's so much oppression, there's so much marginalisation, there's so much kind of dumbing and dulling down of voices. And what's happening now, you see, is it's a revolution, it's a renaissance. We're, we're, we're here to say, yeah, enough's enough. You know, we've heard it from our grandparents, we've heard it from our parents. This generation now is saying, actually forget it you know big f you big middle finger we're not afraid of you we're not afraid of the institutions we're not afraid of the repercussions the price of freedom actually if we look at the history is death Mm. and it's a profound statement but these are kind of conversations we need to be having in early years the price of freedom historically has been death in all of these things that have happened that is the price people have paid with their life and what's happened in each movement is that as the generations have gone forward, we've reaped a little tiny bit of the benefits of somebody giving their life. Um, so it's a serious topic. It's a serious thing that we have to address. And we have to get used to saying black child. Yep. South Asian. Yep. East Asian. And where in East Asia they are from. I'm so particular about that. You know, is the family Vietnamese, is the family Thai, is the family Chinese, is the family Korean, is the family Japanese. In the same way we talk about the Caribbean, mm. are my parents Jamaican? Are they from Trinidad? Are they from St. Kitts? You know, are they from Antigua? We have to really be getting used to using terminology um, when it comes to race and looking at those unique experiences, a unique child. It's, the literature's there. It's just so funny when you link it 
to the EYFS because it's not stuff that we haven't heard, mm. but how are we applying the knowledge that we have in our practice? Are we really willing to do that audit? That, that is the work. Are we auditing ourselves? Are we auditing our practice? Um, and that's something yeah. as well. I think it's really important to make that point because I tend to find that some of these conversations we have been having with the podcast is that people are viewing a self-audit as layering themselves up with guilt and regret and, and all these yeah. negative feelings. And it's like, that's not the purpose of a self-audit. No. It is to no recognize and to grow yep. and to make positive steps forward. And, and I've always been one of those people, I kind of, I don't tend to use um, areas of strength and areas of weakness. I always say strength and an area of development. I recognize weaknesses do exist, but what, what I'm trying to say to a person is if you're going to look inwards, you, it's not to then make yourself so small over, and feeling full of guilt. It's to go, wow, I've just yes. something that I've kind of not totally. put right forward there. So, totally. and it's making that really clear with this self audit. We're not asking people to suddenly punish themselves for their <laughs> horrible yeah. Like, oh, I was a bit of a dick there. I wouldn't yeah. do it in the future. And this is how I'd approach it going forward. And so it minimizes that, that suddenly, because I think sometimes the fear for practitioners is that they see something as a huge body of work rather mm. than a series of small steps. That self-audit mm. is, mm. is, is being in tune on a daily mm. basis with things that you do. Yeah. It isn't suddenly stopping life and going, right, exactly. now I need to address this in its entirety. No, mm. it's, a, it's an ongoing cyclical experience. Yeah. And we don't look at Sen like that. When we look at Sen and how we look at inclusion for Sen children, it is a very um, important, we recognise the value of children feeling like they are part of the nursery group if they've got an additional need, mm. right? We look at bringing in and drawing on all of the resources, all of the specialists, you know, we'll have speech and language therapists coming through, we'll have specialist play workers coming in, we'll have meetings with health visitors and the parents. There's a joint enterprise of centering the child and seeing what is going to make the, the child's experience the most fulfilling if this child has got an additional need. So the same question can be asked around racial difference. You know, mm. it isn't enough to celebrate Eid and Diwali and Chinese New Year and Black History Month. It is not enough. What are we doing to draw on our local community? The community is enriched with people from various different backgrounds and experiences. <clears throat> and some of the things that I've always done in the, in the setting is I've had, you know, people from outside come in so it's been on an ongoing basis, people coming in and just celebrating elements of their culture and elements of who they are as individuals, work around kind of, you know, linking real life experiences to the nursery experience. So in our home corner, for instance, if we're thinking about role play, we're thinking about ordering from the Caribbean takeaway down the road on Dudley Road. You know, what are we going to order? oh, can I have some mutton or can I get some jerk chicken? And I want a little bit of, a little bit of sauce on the side and I want it on the rice and peas. And because that's relatable, that's cultural capital. That is linking the real life experience of my children because I eat a roast on a Sunday. I love a roast dinner, but I also like a little bit of rice and peas and I like a mutton dinner as well when I'm sitting in my lunch break at the nursery. You know, I can be two things at the same time. The duality of my identity has to be celebrated how you know the listeners are going to hear my voice but we are seeing each other 
Um, I said to Kate yesterday, I love a good beat. For those who don't know what that is, makeup, my face looks like this all the time because I like a little bit of Mac, like a little bit of Fenty, like a little bit of Bobby Brown, slap it all on. This is me. Do you know what I mean? I like a lash. Nails are not good at the moment, which is devastating because yes. nail shops are closed. However, um, you know, I like a tattoo. That, that's me. And I come in my unapologetic state to the nursery every single day. If I don't come in with, with my face done, you know, the kids will be like, Liz, where's your eyebrows? What happened? Where are they? Where have they gone? You're like, oh gosh, didn't have time to draw them on today, but I'm going to do them upstairs in the office. It's relatable. Oh, my mum's got those nails. I love your nails. My mum's got these as well. It's relatable. So you know it, it's about that. With that, and I think actually that's a broad issue. I think we've spoken about this in a prior podcast because I, mm. I used to get into trouble constantly when I was a practice, <laughs> like, um, Lots of, of written warnings and things. Oh, um, naughty. Yeah, and it was, often, <laughs> it was often around uniform and showing parts of myself, like yeah. tattoos and yeah. different coloured hair. And what I noticed throughout my entire practitioner career is every mm. place I walked into they tried to strip my identity yeah. for children. And I was like, do you understand how many questions are generated by a child seeing a Russian doll on my leg or by seeing some crossbones on my back or the fact that I've got pink yes. in here? And it, it, like, it really is insane to me that we have it this is. culture in the early years of get them a fleece, a polo top, with some flared pants, covered in squatting kids, and you're like, Terry, it's so true. It's so true. I'm like, you know, my my team, you know, put your leggings on if you want to wear your leggings. Put your stretch jeans on if you, as long as they're black. You know, I want a black stretch jean because I love a Topshop Joni jean. You know, that's a bit of me. Get your tattoos out. If you've got different coloured hair, you know, I... I think it's just so important to celebrate that and for the kids to see it because we're not expecting the kids to be uniform. We're not preparing them for a uniform world. So why should we be showing them something that actually isn't real? It's not real. moments. Yeah. Yourself as a human in your own culture. And this is what I loved when Vanessa said, culture is colourful, yet totally tendency to just yep. go it all the way. Don't admit that you like music. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's so weird when you, and even when I go into earlier settings as a consultant now, I do kind of try to say, be yourself, yeah. be yourself. You be don't yourself. To, to hide who you are. Um, totally. Because you're actually way more interesting when I hear that you, you've got a personality, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've gone off topic there, but I just... <laughs> no, but it's so, it's still, you know, this is the thing I think you spoke about on your podcast with Jamal, you know, the tapestry. Yes, the yeah. tapestry it's we are many things at the same time all of those threads come together to make you know a beautiful multicolored, multifaceted blanket of sorts the tapestry is key you know a lot of things that we think about in terms of our early childhood experiences as individuals there's a wealth of things I remember all of those. I remember what it was like on a Sunday when food was cooking. I remember going to the park and learning to ride my bike with the stabilizers. Stabilizers? Stabilizers. I remember going swimming with my dad. I remember going to Jamaica and spending a week with my grandma. I remember all of these things. It enriched me. So I become 
unapologetically myself. I am not dimming the lights for anybody or for anybody's comfort. Hell no, never had, never will. And I encourage my practitioners and all actually, all black practitioners who are in settings who feel like they have to dim their shine, do not do it. People must accept you for who you are because that is what makes you beautiful and unique. And the children need that. The children need that charisma. They need that energy. They need that element of you where they can see themselves and where they can see wider society. And I say that to black practitioners because I understand that black women make up a lot of the workforce in early years. You know, we're overrepresented in the workforce. We're underrepresented in leadership and management. And I put up a little video on my Instagram just to allude to that and to say to any black girls that are working in nurseries right now, be you, be you, and do not ever apologize for it. You know, learn as you go along the practice that you need to learn. But in terms of your personal representation, you have to be yourself. It will lead to mental health. If you are not, and you're constantly thinking about how to fit in, how to code switch, respectability politics, how can I say this? How can I not say that? You will cause yourself an absolute damage emotionally and mentally and your well-being. Again, you know, it's in the new guidelines. You know, what are we doing for our well-being as, as practitioners and as managers? Well, you can start by, you know, just being yourself. Mm, yeah, I think a lot of that depends on the setting that you work in. I, I talk yeah. about, you know, we're in a, we're currently like, you know, why do you work in the setting that you work in? Mm-hmm. And actually also, you know, rather than, you know, if you own a setting, just being like, oh, they should be grateful they've got a job here. It's like, why would I want to bring all my skills, strengths and talents to this setting? You know, Absolutely. like uh, it's, we talked at the start, didn't we, about, you know, empowering our workforce, mm-hmm. and being proud of our achievements. But a lot of what we've kind of finished off talking about is self-identity really, isn't it? And yeah. I think, I know that I talked in the podcast with Jamal yesterday about how you talked about being that role model for your members of staff within your workplace that, you know, you can have mm. leadership and management responsibilities. But Jamal mm-hmm. was saying that actually, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, black members of staff feel like they don't want to go into those leadership and management roles and like mm-hmm. unpicking and understanding why, why, why is that? What, yeah. you know, what further support do they need to be able to, you know, um, further develop their skills in these roles so mm. I think to hear you just you know but as you've said it is being bold and apologetic but it's that self self-identity and as Kerry said there's like this same recurring themes weaving through these podcasts and we're reflecting back on them like yeah. on what's been said so you know um it has been so interesting talking to you today and like we were going to be talking i'd read a, a blog and i was going to be asking you about black, black oh, yeah. boy, black boy black joy, yes. magic yeah. and we not even got there because we've been talking about other things but oh. um, i know i'd spoken to you about potentially doing a podcast takeover for us where you mm-hmm. would take over and take the reins and you know choose some guests and maybe uh, lead some podcasts for us but one of the things that i thought about is that uh, we thanks to laura henry uh, we've got in touch with jane lane and i'm waiting yes for, i'm waiting ah! for her, <laughs> yeah, i'm waiting for her to get back to us about doing a podcast so i'm thinking maybe you'd be the perfect person to lead that podcast with jane lane with pleasure you've made all my dreams come true <laughs> idol you know yeah. it's been a week of idol meeting and talking <laughs> speaking to laura now you got me hooked up with jane listen yeah. jamal i was speaking yeah. you know, listen it's just been so good i would pleasurably do that kate 
Great. pleasurably. So, so um, Will, you know, we said at the start, we've got so much we could talk to you about. And I know if people are listening to you, they're going to like us, they're going to want to hear more from you. So we'll, we'll make those podcasts, those podcast takeovers happen. Um, and, um, you know, if people want to find out more information about you, Liz, about the Black Nursery Manager, where can they find you and how can they get in touch? Listen, come along on the Instagram train. Get on the Instagram train and Find me at The Black Nursery Manager. I am a big fan of Instagram. I like it more than Twitter because I'm expressive and Twitter's great and I use my words, but I like Instagram better. So come at me, um, you know, on Instagram at The Black Nursery Manager. If you are more of a Twitter head, I am on Twitter as well um, as at Liz, L-I-Z, Betty, B-E-T-T-Y, Pem, P-E-M, um, at Liz Betty Pem, and then, you know, the Black Nursery Manager will come up. But you'll find me, you'll find me. I'm going to be in everybody's Facebook? faces. No. I'm not Facebook? on Facebook. No, no, because there's some crazy people on Facebook. I don't know. Some crazy people there. I'm getting back into my Birmingham now. Um, <laughs> no, not for me. Not for me, Kate. Uh, uh, as I said, I've been there and done that, and I don't really like it. I don't love it. Facebook's my favourite out of all of Really? Them. Yeah. My favourite's Instagram, man. I yeah. love Instagram. We can love meet it. there. We can find Please. you and we can meet you there. So Please. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Kerry, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add as we sign off. No, just a big thank you. That's been really interesting. I've said to everybody that we've interviewed, I've got a massive page of notes and quotes. Um, and just thank you because I think, uh, and I know I messaged you yesterday, Liz, about the fact yeah. that we don't want this podcast to necessarily be a podcast that is listened to by experts and professionals. Mm -hmm. We want practitioners to, to be heard. Totally. Practitioners to have a voice. Um, yeah. So I think these, these um, podcasts will hopefully... They uh, definitely will. They definitely will. Like, absolutely big F you to professional snobbery. Not here for it. Big F you to respectability politics. Not here for it. So, uh, yeah, practitioners, get to listening. I'm not interested in the professional snobbery that exists within our industry. It's about making sure that we're coming together as a collective to do this and do this properly. Yeah. Brilliant. Perfect end to our podcast. Thanks, Liz. And I can't wait to hear you on our podcast again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.